Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. As you know, my MO is to take books of the Bible and teach them. As you also know, we're currently going through the book of Genesis. Well, let me tell you that one of the things I have learned in going through books of the Bible, like I do, is that I find myself preaching on things that I would never have thought to preach on. If I were left to my own devices, I would take the popular subjects of the Bible, the practical subjects of the Bible, and I would speak on those, which is what most pastors do. Uh, they also look at the congregation and figure out what that they think the congregation needs, and that's what they preach on. So I've done some topical things. I've done some special messages. But in the main, as you know, I teach books of the Bible. Now, what is uh, interesting about that is I find myself speaking on these things that I would never speak on. And that's the case tonight. We're in Genesis chapter 49. We started it last time, and we're going to finish it and spill over into chapter 50 this time. But here's the interesting thing about what we're going to do. Namely that it's about Jacob being buried. So let me begin by suggesting that sooner or later, arrangements for our funeral is going to be made, one way or the other. Uh, now, that's not something that we would normally think about. It's not something I would normally speak about. But if I'm going to teach the Bible verse by verse, book by book, I bump into this, and I have no choice but to tell you about it. So, somebody, either you or somebody else, is going to make arrangements for your funeral. So here's the issue. A number of questions need to be asked and answered. For example, who's going to make those arrangements? Uh, are you going to make them? And if you don't, Somebody else will. They'll have to. And then perhaps we need to ask, what details need to be covered if you're going to make the arrangements yourself? Well, I think some of those things are addressed in Genesis chapter 49. And as I mentioned, this passage has to do with the burial of Jacob. So the question is, what things were covered that would pertain to us. So I want us to look at Genesis chapter 49. I want us to focus on what's here. And at the same time, I want us to learn some things that we can do that 
was done in the case of Jacob. So with that in mind, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 49, and let's begin by looking at verse 29. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my father in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. All right, let's pause here and get some... Uh, details uh, in focus concerning what's going on. As If you've been following me through Genesis, you know that um, all of Jacob and the whole family ended up in Egypt, and that's what's going on in this passage. Um, at this point, Jacob is on his deathbed. And verse 28 says that uh, that all the 12 tribes of Israel had been given their inheritance. So then he charged them, meaning his sons. And the charge was that they would take care of his funeral arrangements. Now, earlier in the book of Genesis, namely in chapter 47, he made Joseph promise that when he passed away, he would be buried not in Egypt, but back in Canaan. Now he's calling all of his sons together and making them make the same promise. Verse 30 says, and this is where I want you to bury me. I want you to bury me in the cemetery plot that Abraham purchased. Now, this is really interesting to me, partly because I've been to this site and was a little surprised I had forgotten uh, what, I had, what I knew when I was there. But if you go to the city of Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem, and today it's in the Arab territory, there is a building that is supposed to be built over the cave of Machpelah. Now, earlier in the book of Genesis, Abraham made a deal to purchase that piece of property, and that's what these verses are telling us. It is reviewing those details. What is fascinating is this. Abraham is buried on that spot. Sarah is buried on that spot. Isaac is buried there. So is Rebekah and Leah. Now, Leah was Jacob's first wife. It wasn't his first love, but it was his first wife. He had two, actually he had four if you count the two concubines. And Leah is buried there. Uh, Rachel is buried somewhere else. And this is calling for Jacob to be buried there. So there is one spot in Israel, where all three of the patriarchs and their wives is buried. Now, now we're going to see some more details about this in a minute, but can you imagine 
the excitement, the news it would make if archaeologists could go dig that up. Um, that's not going to happen. If it were in Jewish hands, I suspect it might be, but it's in Arab hands, and I don't think that's going to happen. It's the Jews that uh, are digging around as archaeologists, not the Arabs. So, but the point of these opening verses is simply this. Jacob is giving a charge to all of his sons and saying, bury me in the land of Canaan, in the very cemetery plot, that's where we'd say it today, that Abraham purchased, and Abraham and Isaac and their wives are buried there. That's where I want to be buried. All right, pick up the story at verse 31. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Het. So this is just uh, telling us again the details of what had happened before. But there's a deep significance here beyond funeral arrangements. Why did he want to be buried there? He's in Egypt, and taking him back to Canaan and burying him is quite an ordeal. So why didn't he just say, I'm on my deathbed, bury me here and forget it? What's going on here beyond basic funeral arrangements? And the answer is, God promised the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by saying, I want to be buried in the land, is for him an act of faith. He is saying, God promised the land, and that's where I want to be buried. That's my home. Now, they've all left. They're all in Egypt. But he's saying, no, I'm believing the covenant of God, the promise of God, the faithfulness of God, and I want you to take me back to Canaan, and I want you to bury me there. So look at verse 33. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and would gather to his people. I said he was on his deathbed. I meant that literally. What is interesting, it says, he drew his feet up into the bed. Now, what, what's going on there? Well, in order to really appreciate that, you've got to go back a little uh, in the book of Genesis. And what happened is uh, he sat up in bed, maybe on the side of the bed, to bless all of his sons. Once he's done that, uh, which is in chapter 49, and once he has given them instructions concerning his burial, he lays down. Uh, he lifts his feet up, puts them in the bed, he lays down. What is interesting is this. It says, he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now, it's an interesting phrase. And he was gathered to his people, breathed his last, but he still was in existence. 
that little phrase, he gathered to his people, clearly indicates that the Old Testament is teaching there is life after death. He breathed his last breath on this earth, and what happened then? Well, he was gathered to wherever his people were, Abraham, Isaac, and all the past relatives. So this is one of those clues, uh, verses in the Old Testament, that indicates there's life after death. Almost all the Old Testament uh, is about the earth. It's about life. It's about now. And every once in a while you get these little uh, verses that talk about life after death. The New Testament's full of that. Uh, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Uh, God so loved the world he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believed in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, All those kind of verses are talking about life after death. Uh, the, New, the Old Testament doesn't say a lot about that, but this is one of those places where it does, and that is significant. All right, there are two parts to the passage we're going to look at tonight, and the first is the rest of verse 49, and in a minute we're going to look at some of the verses in chapter 50. It's all related to the burial of Jacob. But before I go on, I want to simply make two points. Number one, what's going on in these verses is an illustration of Jacob's faith. He trusted the Lord down to his last breath. And the New Testament puts a premium on that. That we are to endure in faith to the very end. Uh, That, we could take the time, we could go through a number of verses that talk about that. But that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to trust him and believe him and endure in faith till the day we die. Uh, There's a great debate over what happens when people don't endure. Uh, The Arminians say that you could be saved and not endure, and that just simply means if you didn't endure till the end, you lost your salvation. But Calvin has come along and say that if you didn't endure, well, that just proves you were never saved to begin with. Uh, But everybody agrees that the New Testament is putting a premium on enduring. Now, I don't happen to subscribe to either one of those points of view. I think what the New Testament is teaching is uh, you're saved, you're sealed, that's secure, nothing can change that, and if you endure you will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. But the point is, everybody agrees that the Scripture puts a premium, if you will, on enduring, in faith. And that's what Jacob did. The second thing I'd like to point out is this. He's trusting the Lord, and he made funeral arrangements. And that's what I was saying in the introduction. I don't think I'd speak on this if I weren't going through this passage. But sooner or later, somebody is going to make our funeral arrangements. And we need to do that. I have Bible for that. Jacob. So what did he do? What are the details? What arrangements should you make? Well, there are all kinds of arrangements you should make. But I'm going to talk more about that in a bit. But at this point, just let me suggest that um, bare minimum, 
maybe you should buy a cemetery plot. Now, have I got Bible for that or what? Abraham did it. Isaac was buried in the family plot. Jacob was buried in the family plot. Their wives were buried in the family plot. So bare minimum, you should go buy a cemetery plot. Now, have you ever heard a preacher teach like that? You ever heard a preacher say you should go buy a cemetery plot? (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard one say it. But I know this, it's biblical and you ought to do it. Uh, It's very simple to do. Figure out what cemetery you want to be buried in. Go see them and you can make payments and buy a piece of property. Now, as a pastor, I say do that because I've had to see situations where the person didn't do that, and at the worst possible moment, when the spouse and the family is grieved, they have to go do things like figure out where to bury this person. That ought not so to be. That ought to have been done way before the time when it was necessary for you to be buried. Is that an exciting subject to talk about on a rainy night? (laughs) But it's one that's very necessary, and the older you get, the more necessary it is. So, these verses are talking about the faith of Jacob. He trusted the Lord to the very end and made arrangements that indicate his faith. And that's what's going on. Beginning in chapter 50, verse 1, we're going to look at his funeral. So he dies, and now we're going to bury him. So this could be called the funeral of Joseph. Look at chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. He died. Jacob. You might call Joseph his favorite son. Would that be fair? He certainly loved Joseph very much. And Joseph loved his father. And so the text says, he fell on his father's face and wept and kissed him. You ever been at a funeral and see somebody kiss the deceased person? How many times have I seen it? But what I want to point out is he wept. He was was grieved. He was bereaved. And he cried. All of which is perfectly legitimate. That's what you ought to do. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul uh, dealt with a situation where he founded a church in Thessalonica, told them that the Lord was coming back and We were going to be raptured, meet the Lord in the air. And he left town. After he left town, some people in the congregation apparently died. And now they're all concerned. Because Paul taught them that the Lord's coming back and they want to know about this person that died. What's going to happen to him or her? And so Paul addresses that question in 1 Thessalonians. And in chapter 4 he says, We sorrow not as others who have no hope. And then he says, 
The Lord's going to bring them back when he comes. Don't worry about them. Comfort one another with these words. But what intrigues me is he says, we sorrow not as others who have no hope. So there's two kinds of sorrow. You can be sorrowful and have no hope. Uh, And that would be deeply painful. Or you can be a believer in Jesus Christ. The person that's departed can be a believer. And you still sorrow. And that's the point I want to make. You still sorrow. That's perfectly legitimate. It's just that you don't do that as others who have no hope. So Joseph sorrowed, but he had hope because chapter 49, the last verse, verse 33 says, He was gathered to his people, and Joseph knew he was going to join him. So he sorrowed with hope. So there's no chapter break in the Hebrew text, so you need to put these two verses together. He's gathered to his people, and yet he sorrowed. Perfectly legitimate. Chapter 50, verse 2. And Joseph commanded his servants, uh, the physicians, to embody his father. So the physicians embodied Israel. Another name for Jacob. Does that mean anything to you? Where are they? Where are they when this happens? Egypt. Egypt. And he tells the physicians in Egypt to embody Jacob? What does that mean? Jacob got made into a mummy. I don't know that that happened to Abraham or Isaac or their wives, or for that matter, anybody else. I know that you can go to Jerusalem and they'll show you a place that they say is the tomb of David. Uh, I'm not certain that that's where David's buried, but they'll tell you that's the traditional place. There are some other tombs in, near Jerusalem of people in the Old Testament. But I don't know that anybody else in the Old Testament was mummified. Is that a word? But can you imagine? And as we're going to see in a minute, he's taken back to Israel, Hebron to be specific, and he's buried. What, now, let me just entertain the possibility that if archaeologists dug up that tomb, that building where all the uh, tombs are, could you imagine what it would be like to find a mummy there and we would know it's Jacob? Is that a fascinating thought or what? Boggles my mind. I, I think I would put that real close to finding Noah's ark. Uh, as you know, the Bible says that uh, Noah's ark uh, landed on Mount Ararat, and there are all kinds of incidences of people saying they've seen something on Mount Ararat that in some cases looked like the hull of a ship. Uh, I've done some uh, digging into that subject. I find it quite fascinating. I just think, by the way, you can't go up there because the Turkish government won't let you go up there. There have been some expositions and 
you got to catch it just right because the snow covers up what others have seen and it gets real complicated. But I just think it'd be real fascinating if someday we found Noah's Ark and we found Jacob's mummy. Would that be fun or what? I think that would be exciting. At any rate, Joseph, second in command in Egypt, orders the physician to make his father embalmed, which means, we know from history, he became a mummy. Look at verse 3. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed, and the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Interesting. It took forty days to embalm him, and the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Not his family, the Egyptians. So apparently, that was their custom. Which leads me to say that people grieve the loss of a loved one, and they mourn, but not everybody does it the same way. So in this case, they mourn for 70 days. That was just two days fewer than mourning for a pharaoh. So this is a big deal. For more than two months, they went through some kind of a mourning and grieving process for Jacob. Look at verse 4. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go and bury my father, and I will come back. Now, this strikes me as a little interesting because um, he was second in command. Pharaoh had put him in charge. He, He had a relationship with Pharaoh, but he didn't go to Pharaoh directly. He gets some officers of Pharaoh to go to Pharaoh and say, Joseph's made a promise to his father. He swore that he would bury his father in Canaan, and he is asking permission to go, and promises that if you let him go, he will come back. I don't know why he went through the officials. I just found it fascinating. So Pharaoh said, verse 6, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Pharaoh gives him permission to go. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. So, as well as the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house, only their little ones, their flock, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen, which is where the Israelites had settled. So, this is interesting. 
some of the officials of Pharaoh go. And, of course, the, all the brothers go, the family goes. Matter of fact, everybody went, apparently, except those who were not able to go. And that, it seems to me, is the point of verse 8. Only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. So the small children were left behind, and all their animals. Now, that apparently was a token that I promised I'd come back, and so we're going to leave the children here, we're going to leave the flocks and the herds here, and that's a pledge, so to speak, that I will come back. Perhaps that's why they did it. So, we are told in verse 9, And there they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Matter of fact, I was looking at this passage today, and I thought to myself, I had 12 sons, and they all had wives, and they had children, and maybe some of them had grandchildren. They had servants. They had uh, the officials of Egypt went. I've seen what I thought was a long processional for a funeral. I suspect this was one long line of people. And it says that there were chariots and horsemen. Apparently, the chariots carried the food supply. And the horsemen went along for protection. So they are well protected against anybody who might want to molest them, and they are trucking back all the way from Goshen in Egypt all the way back up to uh, Canaan, where he's going to be buried at Hebron. Now, at this point, something rather strange happens. It says in verse 10, And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. And they mourned there with a great and solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And then verse 11 says, And when the inhabitants of Canaan heard about that, they gave it a name, which means Abel Mezrim, which is the place of mourning. Now what is strange about this is if you look at a map, and it's really understand this, I need a map, but they were in Egypt. There is a direct route from Egypt straight to uh, the southern part of Palestine. You go through what is today Gaza, which is on the Mediterranean coast. So you'd leave Egypt and go straight up to Gaza. They didn't do that. Uh, they, they went east and went up the east side of the Dead Sea and ended up on the east side of the Jordan River. Hebron is on the west side of the Jordan River. And why they didn't just go straight to Hebron, I do not know, except perhaps that was the trade route, and they went there. And then when they got on the east side of the Jordan, they stopped and apparently observed another Egyptian custom and mourned seven more days. So this is all in the process of burying Jacob.
Then uh, they says in verse 11, and when the inhabitants of the land of Canaan saw it, I mentioned that they, uh, they, they saw the deep mourning of the Egyptians, therefore they named the place Abel Mizram, which means the mourning of the Egyptians. So this apparently was an Egyptian custom. They saw the Egyptians doing this who were with the funeral procession. Verse 12, so the sons did for him just as he commanded them. What does that mean? That they took him to the cave and buried him uh, with his ancestors, which is what verse 13 says. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he was buried, uh, his father Joseph returned, after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all that went up with him to bury his father. So these opening verses of chapter 50 are simply telling us about the funeral of Joseph. And it's telling us that the sons did as they were requested, and they did as they were promised. I guess uh, if we were going to put ourselves in their shoes, if people gave us instructions for their burial, we should honor their wishes and carry them out. Uh, as a matter of fact, when my brother and I buried our mother, she had a request, and my brother thought we shouldn't fulfill it because it was an added expense. But she didn't want the casket to be put in the ground. She wanted it to be put in a case in the ground. And my brother said, we don't need to do that, and she's never going to know the difference. And I said, bro, that was her wish, and that's what we ought to do. And with a little persuasion, he agreed, and we bought that little box to put her in because that was her wish. And so these verses are simply telling us they did as their father requested. So if you are involved in the funeral arrangements of somebody else, do what they requested and do what you promised to do. All right, let's wrap this up. I said that this passage was about the burial of Jacob. So, burial arrangements were made for him, and I think this tells us several things that maybe we should consider. For example, burial arrangements should include a testimony of faith. That was the latter part of chapter 49. Just requesting to be buried in Canaan was a testimony to his faith in the promises of God. And secondly, those carrying out those requirements should follow their instructions. So what are we to learn from this passage? Well, let me make several observations. Number one, as you've heard me say now, as we've gone through Genesis, you need to look at these stories in the context of the book of Genesis. So if we took this story and put it 
in the context of the book of Genesis, I think we would see that this is uh, really another indication of the patriarchs believing God. I've referred to that several times, but I think that's a critical issue here. Jacob believed the Lord. One author said, and I quote, the record of Jacob's burial in the land is important to the purpose of Genesis. God had promised the land to Abraham and had given the patriarchs a small portion of it. The faith of these men that God would fulfill his promise and do for their descendants all that he promised is obvious in their view of Canaan as their homeland. They counted on the future faithfulness of God who had proven himself faithful to them personally during their lifetime. End of quote. What struck me about that statement is the author said, this burial of Joseph is important to the purpose of Genesis. And the purpose of Genesis is to record that God promised the land to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this fits that purpose that those patriarchs believed that God was going to fulfill his promise to them. Another observation I would make is that in one sense this fits the purpose of Genesis and it talks about the faithfulness of God, but that also talks about the faith of these men. The burial of believers should be in such a way as to give testimony that the one who died believed in the future resurrection and the fulfillment of God's promises. As I've pointed out going through this passage, Jacob believed the Lord to the end. And that whole funeral procession involving all those pagan Egyptians was a testimony to them that here is a man who believed God. They could not go through this without knowing that. And so I say, and you're making arrangements for your funeral, perhaps it should include a testimony of your faith in Jesus Christ. It ought to bear testimony that you have believed the Lord's promise. I uh, have uh, done some arrangements for the funeral, but down to the service, my view on that is um, I don't care. I'm not going to be here. I'm having a good old time, so I don't care what you do. I'm going to leave that up to Patricia. But if you do, I, I would assume that you would say loud and clear, there was a man who believed the book. He believed the Lord. As a matter of fact, I had a conversation uh, Sunday, this past Sunday, with a young person in our church, and I wish I could bring back how it happened but um, I don't know. I, we were joshing and joking around, and I said something, and he said, uh, "Oh, you know, do you ever pay any attention to what I'm preaching? Have you learned anything?" He said, "Oh yeah, I've learned something." I said, "Oh, tell me, what, what what have you learned listening to me preach?" He said, "I've learned 
you trust the Lord. And I looked at him and I said, you know, that's the finest compliment I've ever been paid. If I didn't teach you anything else but trust the Lord, I've succeeded. And that I would hope you would say. Here was a man who believed God and taught people to trust the Lord. Makes my heart go pitter-patter. That is the kind of testimony we need to leave, even at our funeral. Now, I have one more suggestion, and it is the kind of thing I would probably never have said unless I was going verse by verse through this book, and that is, you should make plans for your burial and funeral. Now, I mentioned part of this a minute ago, but I want to revisit it again for just a minute. I think you need to make arrangements for your funeral and your burial. So, let me spell some things out. Number one, you need to go buy a burial plot. Do it now. By the way, if you're young, it's cheaper than when you're old. Because you get it, it's gonna in, the prices are going to get inflated. So if you're young, think about that now. Because that's something young people don't think about. But you need to go buy a burial plot. I know that sounds gruesome, but that's what these guys did. And they're our example. So we should do the same. Number two, maybe you should make some funeral arrangements. I have been involved in funerals where the deceased person laid out the scripture that was to be read, the songs that were to be sung, I mean all kinds of details. Now that, as I mentioned a minute ago, has no appeal to me. I don't care. I'm somewhere else, and I'm having a grand old time, so I don't care. But I think if you do, then you need to put that down on paper and give it to somebody. The third thing I would say is this. You need to make some estate plannings. You need burial property, funeral arrangements, and estate planning. Now, I've been saying this off and on for years as I've bumped into this in the scripture, but if you've accumulated any kind of material possessions, then you need to figure out who gets what. That's commonly called a will. Well, let me tell you, there's a special court called probate court. And uh, probate court does one thing and one thing only. It determines who gets what you left. And the way that happens is this. If you do not have a will... The state writes your will. Go one line, you can find the will the state makes. They lay it all out, who gets what and in what order. So if you do nothing, they'll write your will for you. The second possibility is you write a will. Now, where there's a will, there is probate. That even if you have a will, that will has to go to a probate judge, and he decides if it's a valid will and who gets what. And the minute it's read, the assets are distributed. 
The third possibility is you can avoid all of that. You can avoid the probate court, and you can actually exercise more control over what you have. And that's called getting a living trust. Now, the idea of a trust is simply that um, you give all your assets to this trust. It's a legal entity. And legally, you no longer own anything. That scares people. You mean I'm going to give my house and my car and my bank account and all my uh, things to somebody else? That's right. But you still control them. You don't legally own them, but you control them because you make yourself the trustee. If you're married, you make you and your wife the trustees. And then you have a, sub, uh, a successor trustee, and when you pass away, then the successor trustee could be one of your family members. The successor trustee then has to carry out, by law, what is in that document that you wrote. So I am simply suggesting that you at least need a will, and uh, even if you don't have much, those things that are meaningful to you that you want somebody to have, make out a will. And if you have a house, uh, some kind of financial assets, you need a living trust. Now, I've said all of that before, not often, but I've said it from a pulpit. And I think I'm going to add something else to it. As you know, except for my brother, my dearest friend is a fellow named Dave. And he is right now uh, in a, it's not in a coma, but he might as well be. He's paralyzed from his neck down. And he could snap out of this, and he could be in this situation for a long time. I talked to somebody yesterday who said, I've seen people in this condition, and he's at uh, Topanga Terrace. And I talked to somebody who said, I've seen people with this same identical problem walk out of Topanga Terrace, but it took eight months. And what I'm in the process of learning is that there are some other things you might need to do that I didn't know about. I'm learning them right now. As a matter of fact, I have an appointment with an attorney tomorrow to go with Maggie and us put some financial things in order because this is a highly unusual situation, but it happens. And so there's some other financial arrangements that need to be made. And I'm going to learn some more as I sit in a meeting tomorrow with Dave's wife and hear what financial arrangements need to be made if he has to stay in that nursing home for a long time. What am I saying? I am saying this is not the happiest subject to talk about. Who wants to sit and talk about their death? But what is the saying? The two things are certain are death and taxes. Okay? It's going to happen. So you might as well make some plans for it. Abraham did. Jacob did. And we need to do the same. So I want to end with this one little thought. If you could have followed me around as a pastor, and if you could see what happens when people don't plan, it would be the greatest motivation in the world for you 
to make some plans. You're not going to be here, granted. But if you don't make plans, you're going to put a burden on the people that you leave behind that shouldn't be put on them. You need to make the decisions to help them. And you've got biblical warrant for doing it in Joseph. Father, thank you for giving us an eternal word that tells us about eternity. And thank you for giving us a practical word that tells us about some of the mundane, even unpleasant things of life. Thank you for the wisdom of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.